All right, this morning we are con- uh, finishing, completing our series, Holy Human, Restoring the Fractured Soul. And it's my privilege, and I really do count it a privilege, to be able to close this series out I have thoroughly enjoyed going through this book. We've been going through the book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, in our community groups. And I don't know about you and your group, but our group has thoroughly enjoyed this and found it really helpful and practical, and um, it's just been, it's been good. And then hearing everybody else who's been up here preaching, I've enjoyed that as well. And today we're f- uh, concluding the series in a fitting way. And this material is coming out of Chapter 7 of that book. Um, But we're going to talk this morning about maturity and what it means to be mature in Christ. And I was talking with the other members of the preaching team last week, kind of joking around, and they're like, how do you preach that sermon? Do you just stand up and say, behold, maturity. (laughs) It's almost as dreadful as having to preach a sermon on humility. Who wants to preach a sermon on humility? The wrong person wants to preach a sermon on humility. So I get to talk to you about what it means to be mature. And in all seriousness, this is obviously, if you know me at all, I'm a work in progress. I'm not here as somebody who has achieved the pinnacle of Christian maturity, but I am pursuing it. I am desiring to be mature in Christ, and I invite you to be pursuing it as well. And that's what this whole series has been about, honestly. This whole series has been about equipping our church together to press into each other and to push one another to love and good works, as Scripture says, to to embrace one another's project of their own spiritual growth as our own and link my success to your success so that together we will urge one another to love and good works and true Christian maturity. That's been the whole point of this process. And we don't want it to stop today. We want this to be something that you, specifically you and your community groups, continue working through together. There are so many helpful, valuable resources in this study that have been provided to us, and we're going to continue as a leadership team equipping our CG leaders to facilitate conversations in community and mediate conflict in community. So this is an ongoing thing. It's not stopping today. This morning, we're going to hear from three people. We're going to hear from a Jewish uh, theologian and philosopher, so a Jewish philosopher. We're going to hear from a Jewish rabbi, and we're going to hear from an apostle. So first, we'll hear from the Jewish philosopher. His name is Martin Buber, Jewish philosopher. He was alive from 1878 to 1965, and he did his greatest, most popular, most well-known work in between World War I and World War II. And it was in World War I where he saw people truly dehumanizing one another. It was the first time where we saw casualties in the millions. The technology of weaponry had reached a point that it had never gotten to before where you could murder millions of people with these weapons. And what he saw was a shift in our view of the other, from seeing them as a person to seeing them as an it. And the minute you make that shift to seeing somebody as an it, it will allow you to do all sorts of things to people. So he came up with this idea, and for this simple, though really difficult to read idea, he was nominated for eight Nobel 
prizes and nine specific Nobel Peace Prizes, nine times, for this, this simple idea. He distilled this down to something that we can all grasp. And in the book, chapter 7, Pete Scazzaro references his work, and he says, it's hard to read. And in my preparation for the sermon, I concur. Scazzaro's a lot smarter than I am, and I looked at some of his writings, and it was hard to read. But the concept is actually quite simple, and we can all relate to this. And this is why this resonated worldwide. In fact, when he came out with this, before he saw the uh, worst extent of dehumanization in World War II, this was before that, this shocked the worlds of philosophy, psychology, theology, and this was based on his view of God and man, specifically in the Old Testament. His view of what it means to be created in the image of God prompted him to come up with this and understand this and share this. And it was revolutionary. And it's still used. This paradigm is still used by counselors today. It's I, it, or I, thou. And so we're going to look at this briefly today. So first of all, I, it. What does it mean to categorize somebody as an it? This is where we come up with labels for people and we put them in this box, and everything that they do tends to reinforce this box. And in a minute, I'll ask you for some of the boxes that come to mind, but when we do this, when we succeed in putting people in this box, it results in an inability to communicate. And when you go to talk to somebody that you have considered an it, and whatever the label is, you are having a monologue, not a dialogue, because you are preventing your own self from hearing what they're saying, because objects don't speak. They don't speak. So when you've dehumanized the other and you've put them in this category of an it, you cannot hear what they're truly saying. You may hear words coming out of their mouth, but they're going to fit your paradigm of how you have come to see this person. And so all of your words, and if you've ever been in this box, you have been the it. You know this to be true, that when the person views you as the other and not a human being, They're not hearing what you're saying, but also you're not really hearing the things that they're saying, are you? There's a wall between you that prevents you from relationship and dialogue, and it results in isolation and monologue. It's really hard to have a relationship when we've got them in the it category. This is what it looks like, and this is where the labels come in. That person is a thing, label, object, Other, they're the other, they're an obstacle. We see them as the obstacle or we see them as our enemy. And I think the the one that summarizes all of these things is a thing, when we see them as a thing. And probably the clearest picture we get of putting somebody in this box is when we read on the news of parents who have put their kids in kennels and social services finds out about it after weeks or months of abuse. They've literally put a child in a box. They've dehumanized their child to the point of being an it. And you don't have to feed an it. And you don't have to nurture an it. And this is what we all do with people every day. In fact, if you pause right now for just a moment, names might come to mind of people in this box, in the it category. People you are opposed to, people who are not friends, people who are enemies. What are some labels that we see out there applied to people in the it category? We see them all the time. What are some labels? Difficult. 
So when somebody is toxic is a label that goes in that category. When we see somebody as toxic, do we really want to hear what they have to say? We're not really going to listen. Sorry? Addict. Addict. An addict is a painful, damaging label, isn't it? Hypocrite. Hypocrite. Yep. Racist Trump lover. There's two. Racist Trump lover. Sit over here. Annoying. annoying. When somebody's annoying, do you want to have a dialogue with an annoying person? Untrustworthy. Untrustworthy. Now, here's the thing. Once you have them in this box, everything this person does is going to reinforce you're putting them in that box in the first place. Everything they do, everything they say, you're going to interpret it as justification for putting them in that box. Of course they're going to do that. They're annoying. Of course they are. Of course he's going to struggle with that. He's an addict. I would expect nothing less. Of course they're going to say that. They love Trump. Those Trumpers. When they're in that category, when you're thinking about people with labels, they are an it to you. And you don't have to love an it. And this is what's dividing our culture today. We are so polarized because we've gotten so good at putting people in this box and excusing ourselves from relating to them. But what happens if we move this into an I-thou sort of category? What can happen if instead of an it, they are a you If I don't see you as an addict anymore, or a racist anymore, or a Trump lover anymore, or somebody who's annoying, or my enemy anymore, but I see you as a human being, just like me, created in the image of God. You're not my theological opponent anymore. You're not the other side anymore. You are a human being, just like me, created in the image of God. What can change just in your own mind, as you allow yourself to do this for people. This is what changes. Now the person becomes a person, sacred, created in the imago Dei, the image of God, beloved, a brother or a sister. And you can have a dialogue with a brother or a sister, can't you? This is what communication looks like when the relationship becomes I-thou. It's back and forth, and it's true dialogue. You have allowed, you've opened up your ears. And this is something that happens here first. It's up to you to change the category of the person, to put them in a different box. They're still going to do things that hurt. They're still going to do things that make you, that really tempt you to put them back in the box and say, okay, they're not ready to be out yet. They're still annoying or they're still an addict. So I can go back to treating them that way. But if you can make the shift to saying, this is a person created in the image of God who I'm called to love. This is my brother. This is my sister. Now I can have a conversation. And now I'm open. My heart is open to hear what they have to say. Here's where the magic happens. As we start to see people in this way as truly you and not it, We move toward them, and we allow them to move toward us. And all of a sudden, we are inhabiting sacred space. And this space in the middle is we. How many racists are you a we with? That's pretty hard. 
How many annoying people are you a we with? Have you been a we with an addict? This changes, this can change everything. And in fact, this is the space that the Holy Spirit of God inhabits. If you'll remember in Matthew 18, Dr. Phil, our own Dr. Phil, was preaching this from Word Testimony this morning. Matthew 18, Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, as you're coming together to work through your stuff together, I'm right there where? In the midst. I'm right here. The Holy Spirit lives in you and them. The Holy Spirit lives in me and us. In fact, Paul writes this to the church. There is one spirit. There's one spirit. And when we're divided, that spirit is not in the midst of us. He's not in the midst of us. But when we can move these people into a different category and see them as human beings created in the image of God, then the Spirit of God is there helping us. And this is where we get the resources to work through whatever it is that led us to categorize them in the first place. Faith, I appreciate your testimony this morning of just a step toward, I'm just going to apologize. And she didn't know how that was going to go or how that was going to turn out, but she took a step in fact, there's another book that I commend to you called Leadership and Self-Deception, uh, and also its sister book, The Anatomy of Peace. And in that book, they break this out, and they talk about your, you yourself being in the box before you even put anybody else in the box, and you end up there the minute you betray yourself from doing a good thing. So your heart motivates you, moves you to do the right thing, and you're like, uh, they're annoying. I'm not going to. And you're just, you put them in the box in that moment. So Faith, in the example that she just shared, had an opportunity to say, we don't do that. (laughs) We don't apologize in this family. And she's probably right. I have a family like that. We don't apologize. In fact, many of us can probably relate to that. And so that can excuse us from doing what the Spirit of God is leading us to do. We can say, no, we don't do that, and walk away from it, and this person will stay in the box. But as you move into that, and say, I'm going to at least take this step, regardless of how they respond. I don't care how they respond. I'm going to take this step toward the middle and see them as a person. Then it opens the gate. It removes that wall of separation between you, and it gives space for the Spirit of God to move you together. This is, in a sense, the culmination of everything that we've been working toward in this series. This is how we truly love our church family together and love our our neighbor together. So, This is the I-Thou construct is from our friend, uh, this Jewish philosopher. Now we're going to move to the Jewish rabbi. Jewish rabbi. Turn to Luke chapter 10. This is our text for this morning. Luke chapter 10, it was read for us already. The story of the Good Samaritan, we're all familiar with that. Behold, a lawyer stood up to him and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, this is verse 25, Luke 10, 25, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. This lawyer isn't a lawyer in the sense that the rest of us think about typically when we think about lawyers. This is somebody who has given himself to the study of the law. He knew the Old Testament better than you do and better than I do. He had books, entire books committed to memory. He was diligent in his love for God. 
In fact, nobody would challenge his love for God. And if you asked him, are you spiritually mature? He would say, absolutely. Look at how much I know about God. And this is really a problem for us in the West because our entire educational system is built around the advancement of knowledge. So just think of math. You know how math builds on itself in consecutive grades as you get into junior high and high school and eventually you hit algebra two and just quit on math because it's so complicated. <laughs> but some people move on to like calculus and all of the hard maths. This, in this system, we learn that the more we learn, the more we grow, right? And so as I'm going through and I check off all the boxes, I memorize the right materials, I move from ninth grade to 10th grade. And I continue passing my tests and getting more and more knowledge, and I pass more and more tests. And then I get out of 10th grade and I move to 11th grade, and I am maturing in theory. And by the time I get to high school, or by, by the time I get to my senior year, I finish there, I might graduate feel this weight of accomplishment because I've graduated and then pursue more education so that I can mature even more. Our concept of maturity often works this way with spirituality as well. When we think of spiritual maturity, I don't know about you, but for me, I often wonder, am I more spiritually mature than I was last year? And the way I tend to answer that, or the way I've, I've just grown up answering that question was, well, do I know more about Jesus than I knew last year? Do I know God better? Do I read more Bible than I did last year? Do I have more knowledge? Can I explain more theology to people? If the answer is yes, then yeah, I'm maturing. I know more than I did 20 years ago, and so I am maturing, obviously. Well, here's the problem with that. This lawyer in Luke 10 knew more than I'll ever know. He had memorized more than I'll ever know. He could pass harder theology tests than I would ever be able to pass. And we're going to see from the story that he was not spiritually mature. Knowledge does not equate to maturity. It's necessary. We are called to train ourselves in doctrine. We are called to know the word of God. It was given to us so that we might know it and more importantly, know him. So knowledge is important. Learning is important. The early church devoted themselves to doctrine but that's not necessarily maturity. You can know a lot about God and be far from him. You can know a lot about Jesus and be a spiritual infant. I speak from experience. The first time a couple of years ago that we took that spiritual, uh, emotional spirituality assessment, uh, I graded as an infant or an adolescent in several categories. And it was so humiliating to me because I thought as a pastor, I was automatically mature. I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be mature. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and so I thought, what is wrong with me? And what was wrong with me was my understanding of what it meant to be mature. And it actually has some to do with learning more about God, but less to do with that than you think. According to this story, it has a lot more to do with how you treat the other. Not just how you treat your friends, but specifically the people that you've put in the box. This is the measure of Christian maturity according to Jesus himself and the apostle that we're going to hear from in a moment. This is what the point of the Good Samaritan is. You know the story if you've been in church for a while. Jesus talks about a, a man traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho 
And he's, uh, the story assumes that he's a Jew because this is often, this is a road well-traveled by Jews. Mostly that's who was on this road. Usually they were wealthy because Jericho was a city where wealthy priests would go and live when they weren't serving. They would travel down to Jericho and they would live there for a while. And then when their duties uh, called them back to the temple, they would go back. And so this was traveled by wealthy Jewish men typically. And so this man in the story would have been assumed to be Jewish. And he gets robbed because the road was also known for robbers. Of course, this is where wealthy people are traveling. We're going to rob them. He gets robbed and badly beaten and left for dead. And two Jewish leaders walk by him who are commanded to love their neighbor. And this is an automatic. This is one of their own. This should be somebody easy for them to love. This isn't even hard. This is your brother. Love him. Help him. You're commanded to do this. And these are religious scholars. They know the commandments of God. They know that they're to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and mind and to love their neighbor as themselves. And instead, they step across the road in order to not defile themselves by touching somebody who might be dead. We're not obligated to love him enough to find out if he's dead. He just could be dead and then we're contaminated, so we're going to cross the road so not even our shadow touches him. Because according to their codes, if your shadow fell on a dead person, you would be contaminated. So they cross the street to completely avoid their brother in the gutter. And then Jesus says a Samaritan. Jesus pulls somebody out of this category. He pulls somebody out of the box to serve in his story. Uh, This person, the Samaritan, would have been categorized in this box by everybody listening to this story. The other, a label, they would have had a label. You don't touch Samaritans. You don't go near Samaritans. You thank God that you're not a Samaritan. You go out of your way to avoid Samaritans. You are authorized to hate Samaritans because they're an it to you. Surely they're not your neighbor. Neighbor doesn't fit in this category. In fact, for the people hearing this story, Neighbor, certainly, this box did not contain the category for neighbor. They're just others. They're its. Our neighbors are probably the people we mostly get along with. And sure, we can love them. Jesus makes the story center on this other. And then he says this other actually behaves better than the Jewish scholars did. This other sees the person lying in the gutter. And instead of classifying him as an enemy or a rebellious person or a sinner or a murderer or a liar or a thief or a blasphemer, he goes out of his way and helps him and brings him back to this inn. He picks him up, puts him on his donkey, brings him to the inn, pays the innkeeper and says, whatever you need for his health, make sure he's better. And I will come back. And if it costs more, I'll pay you whatever it takes. Jesus, if we go back, Jesus asks at the end of this story, he gives the man a test and this lawyer loves tests. Great, it's a test. I'm going to pass this test. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, not, congratulations, you passed the test. Jesus said, now you go do that. You go do that. You want to inherit eternal life? Another way of saying that is, you want to be spiritually mature? You want to graduate into spiritual maturity? Go and do that. Go and do that. An interesting thing about this story 
is that Jesus is actually identifying himself with the Samaritan, with the other. This is powerful. Jesus did not come to humanity as this heroic figure. Jesus came as the outsider. He came as the outsider. The Jesus in this story is the good Samaritan. Jesus is identifying himself with whatever categories people had put Samaritans in, whatever labels they had for Samaritans, Jesus was actually taking that on himself and saying, I am the Samaritan that came for you. He's identifying with the filthy, undeserving, blasphemous other. And he's saying, that's me. That's me. He came not as an insider, but as an outsider. And in a real sense, by telling this story, Jesus came as an it. He came as an it. He didn't even come as a he. He came as an it. For the world, he was despised and rejected by everybody. Everybody in his last hour fled from him. He came as an it, but he was so secure in his father's love that even though we saw him as an it and treated him accordingly, he loved us first. He loved us. In fact, Jesus says something interesting at one point. He says, no greater love has a man than this, that he what? Lay down his life for his friends. You've never seen a greater love than somebody laying down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus said. But then Jesus went and did something greater than that. Jesus went and laid down his life for his enemies. That's greater. He laid down his life for the other. In fact, it was while we were in this category, Scripture tells us, while we were enemies, while we were rebels, while we were sinners and murderers and liars and thieves and blasphemers, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He moved himself, motivated by love, anchored by love. He moved himself out of the it category and refused to see us by our labels, which were well-deserved. He gave us new labels. He was able, out of love, to see us, even while we were his enemies, as friends, as citizens, as saints, as heirs, as sons, daughters, royalty, and beloved, and a hundred other things. He changed the labels for us. And by doing that, he changed everything. He wasn't just the good Samaritan. Jesus was the best Samaritan. And were it not for him, we'd still be left for dead in the ditch. In fact, we would be the well-deserving it's. So we would be sinners, thieves, murderers, adulterers. Every label that would make you wince, we would have those labels and be lying in the ditch left for dead were it not for the best Samaritan. So lastly, we're going to hear from an apostle. And I want to invite you to turn to 1 John chapter 4 in closing. I don't think that I'm forcing the Bible to say something that it's not saying. When I say, 
that love for the other is the defining mark of maturity in the Christian life. I don't think I'm making that up. I think that that's biblical, and I'm going to show you why I think that's biblical, and if you disagree, we can talk about it. 1 John chapter 4, this whole chapter is talking about just the love of God and how because God is love and loved us so much, we are to love out of that love. But I want you to zero in on verse 16. So we have come, this is 1 John 4, verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Let's just stop right there. Isn't it kind of hard to come to know and believe the love that God has for us at times? I don't know about you, I struggle with that. There are times where I don't believe. Just believing the love that God has for me is a mark of growth in my life. But John is assuming we are coming to believe this. We're coming to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Verse 17, by this, lo- by this is love perfected with us. In the New Testament, in multiple places, the writer will, the, the Greek word here for perfected also means maturity. By this, we are perfectly mature by this love. If we let this love come in and dwell in us and then flow out of us specifically toward the other, we know we are maturing. And to the degree that that is being filtered or blocked, we are stuck and we are not maturing. In fact, John says we can take so much confidence in this. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as as he is, so also are we in this world. This is how we know. The measure of your maturity in faith is not your Bible knowledge. You can have Bible knowledge and do nothing with it. That's what Jesus railed against the Pharisees for. You have all of this knowledge and you're making people twice the sons of hell that you your sons are, you yourselves are. Wow. You're strapping heavy burdens on people's backs with all of your knowledge and you won't even use a finger to lift it off of them. Bare knowledge will do nothing for you. But as you know God, in fact, a test for knowing whether you know God is if you understand and believe his love, even if it's a limited measure of understanding. Because Paul says, we can't know the depths of his love for us. But as you come to know and receive his love, and you see that love pouring out of yourself for the other, you see the categories diminishing and being replaced by things like beloved brother or sister family in God, created, image bearer. As you see that happen, then you know and you can have confidence that you are moving forward in faith and not backward. That you are taking the things that you are learning and you're actually seeing them come out of your life in Christian maturity and growth. Now I have a confession. As recently as this morning, right now, one second ago and going forward, I have people in the other box. People who are reinforcing the labels that I've put on them, who with a word can lead me to say, see, Josh, you're right. You're right. That's what this person is. It is an it. It is an it. And it's, 
even though they're real human beings created in the image of God, can really hurt us. People can hurt us, can't they? People can wound, even people that we love, even family, can hurt us and wound us. And we can choose and be, be self-justified, or as the book that I reference calls it, self-deceived. We can choose to keep them in that box because of the behavior, because of the arrows that we're feeling flying out of that box at us. We can keep them there. But Christian maturity changes the way that we view them. And it doesn't mean that it stops hurting us. It doesn't mean that. It actually feels to move them out of the it category and into the thou category and see them as connected to God and bearing his image and my brother or my sister while they're hurting me feels a lot like crucifixion. It feels a lot like being on a cross and mocked and scorned and hurt. But this is the Christian life. As leaders, community group leaders and pastors, we just spent the weekend hearing about the place of pain and the redemptive journey that leads through the place of pain and how it's there where we meet God in a new and a fresh way. Jesus calls us to this. As he loved us, we are called to love one another. This is it. And so this is not me telling you how I've succeeded at doing this. I can look at my life and I can see my heart enlarging for others. I can see it. And people in my community affirm it and call it out and say, I love people more than I did a year ago or 10 years ago. And your community around you can do the same thing and say, either we see it or you need to pay attention to this. We don't see it, but we want to urge you to what? Love and good works. This is Christian community. This is loving our church family together so that we can love our neighbor together, motivated by our love for God together. This is what it does in us. So in closing, I don't have three easy steps to do this. I acknowledge that it is hard to do this, and I am in process daily of doing this. But this is the call on our lives. This is what will mark the church. You will be known not by how much you know about God. The world doesn't care about how much you know about God. It's not asking you questions about your views of God. The world doesn't care. What they will know you by is your love for one another. So in closing, I want you to Google something. I want you to pull your phones out, and I want you to Google something. Okay? So pull your phones out, and with this we will close. I want you to Google this little phrase, 59 one another's. Put that in your Google window and look it up. And if you don't have a phone, a smartphone with you, that's all right. I will have this on the screen as well. 59 one another's. should bring this up, and you're looking for Clover sites. It should be at the top of the list, and I want you to click on that. Click on that. Once you've clicked on it, you've got it. You can go ahead and look at me so I know that you've got it, and we're ready to move. We're going to close just by reading this together. And I want us to read this in sort of quick fashion. And the way I want us to do this is, after you read number one, I want you to stand up. And then somebody else will read number two, and they will stand up. And we're going to do this until we get all the way through it. And if you don't have it, you can follow along on this screen, and I'll be moving the screens. I want you to read it loudly so that we can all hear it. And then after we get to about 53, I think it is, we're all going to stand and read the last few in unison. Okay? So go ahead. 
This is, this is what it would feel like to be in a church that is growing in maturity, specifically in our love for one another. As we hear these words, I want you to just, if you don't feel comfortable reading, fine, that's great. Just sit and let these words wash over you. But this is what the church should feel like, and this is what maturity looks and sounds like. Okay? All right, go ahead. Read number one, and then just keep moving all the way through the list. Be at peace with one another. Wash one another's feet. Go ahead and stand after you read. Number 41. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Encourage one another. Don't grumble against each other. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other. Love each other deeply with your heart. Live in harmony with one another. Love each other deeply. Thank you. 
Okay, let's all stand and we'll read these last ones together in unison. Love one another. 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 Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would come. I pray that your spirit would be with us this morning, equipping us, strengthening us, empowering us to be obedient and to be mature, to press into maturity as we seek to love each other together. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.